0: Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons, I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. It's perhaps useful to begin this episode by considering the why of language. We know that it is inherent to communication. We use language to transmit information to one another about the past, the present, and the future. About things that we can see and those which we can't. But why? What advantage does language confer upon us, humans, that other animals do not have? The answer, in many ways, is obvious. As Stanford University linguist Daniel Dorr puts it, it pays to talk. Language allows us to form complex relationships and shared mental models about the environment and to establish shared knowledge, to create social bonds, to cooperate, to coordinate our activities and to build trust with each other. While we have considered the building blocks of language, its physical and cognitive components and its semantic bits and pieces, that is, its phonemes, words and grammars, Till now, we've glossed over the functional aspects of language, what it does, and why. Daniel Dorr has devoted his career to understanding these, and explains that language is a communication technology. French computer scientist Jean-Louis de Sales, who has written extensively on the evolution of language, theorizes that talking serves as a form of social signaling. He says, quote, by talking in a relevant way, individuals demonstrate their ability to generate unexpectedness and emotion through narratives, and they show off their ability to deal with logical consistency through discussions. This behaviour seems to be universal in our species. End quote. According to De Salles, we do this by informing others of three key pieces of information. Whether we can deal with unexpected events, whether we are a threat, and whether we are a potential social companion. Taken together, talking and in turn language is a way of establishing trust. Once these are established, we can begin to realise the many other benefits of language and shared cooperation which have enabled the dominance of humankind over all other species in the animal kingdom, and indeed, the planet Earth itself. But for this to take place, language must exist within a context which those communicating share and understand, a context which is shaped by social forces. While we have seen how complex language is intrinsically metaphor, by considering its social functions, we can see it has very tangible influences in the real world. These influences exist beyond just the meaning of the words themselves, but are evidenced in the outcomes they achieved in the context in which they are delivered and interpreted. The philosopher John Austin, and later John Searle, described the work of language in this conception as action, that is, words do things. We can imagine this at the literal level when we engage in verbal contracts, like, I now pronounce you man and wife, for example, or in directions, can you please pass me the salt? But language is also more subtle. When we engage in conversation, we are doing more than simply describing the world around us. We are sharing information about how we see that world and ourselves within it. This is not as abstract as it sounds. For instance, it is not just what I say, but that I chose to say it that way that is also important. Language offers insight into the mind of the speaker, and in turn, the way it is interpreted requires something of the listener. We code and decode by adding layers of meaning aligned in time and space, which convey feeling, experience, thought, and culture through the act of communicating. Despite all of this sharing, language is not as systematic as we might think. It is often highly ambiguous, and this is why context is so important. Every individual uses language uniquely. Like a fingerprint, my choice of words and phrases and the way that I formulate sentences is highly specific to me. We may share a language and culture, but what I say and how I say it is unique and highly nuanced. There's some irony here, which our right brains should get, That a theory of universal grammar does not account for the individuality inherent to language. This individual element of language is known as the individual dialect or idiolect. But idiolect is nested within a broader language which we all share. However, as we well know, spoken and written language takes many forms as it is carved up according to a variety of social conventions. One that springs to mind is that of social class, where different lexicons are spoken by different groups. There are also formal levels of language which are more universal in form. These are considered the standard dialect of a language, which is understood by all of its speakers. But in between standard and idiolectic dialects exist the localised, highly specific non-standard dialect which is spoken by those who belong to a particular community who share a common culture. This could be simply street slang, or it could also be terminology and jargon spoken by those who share a profession, or some other activity. These restricted dialects express belonging to a community, the shared values of the group, and even the roles of those within it. We can see this in virtually every type of group we belong to. These dialects are known literally as speech communities, and to belong to one entails having communicative competence with other members. When I speak to my mother, for instance, the language I use reflects our relationship, just as when I speak to my immediate work colleagues, or my boss, or my children. The language we use is constantly shifting and changing according to the social context in which it occurs. We do this, for the most part, automatically, and no one is surprised by it. We literally become someone else as we express ourselves in different contexts. And if we observe that metamorphosis in someone we share more than one group with, we don't bat an eyelid. It's the telephone voice we put on when we don't recognize the number. The transition is seamless. Despite the endless variation in language as it is employed in everyday life, its value remains unchanged. Whether we communicate in a seemingly indecipherable slang or the Queen's English, the transference of meaning, the conveyance of knowledge, trust and information is conserved. One form of language is as good as another as long as it is understood by those who use it. It has been said that all speakers of a dialect use it in a way that is sufficient. It is optimised by its utility. Language, therefore, carries no inherent rightness quotient beyond that which is socially constructed. Consider then that any opinion you may have of different forms of language say very little about the language itself, but they say a lot about you. We can see then that while language is a vehicle for transmitting ideas and carrying out actions, it is inseparable from culture. While Chomsky may have asserted the preponderance of language is internal, taking place in the mind, communication through talking is quite the opposite. We really talk to ourselves. But we also don't spend a lot of time describing the world systematically in real terms, not just a metaphor, as I talked about previously, but in the conversations we have. The majority of our conversations are casual and informal, where we retell narratives or let others in on how we see the world. The more successful we are at doing this, the more accepted we will be. So not only is our language uniquely individual, it is also a key measure in how others judge our value to the group. This fact often becomes painfully apparent to school-aged children as they begin to practice their fledgling social skills. I've made something of a point that I'm not a fan of small talk, a fact which a few people have reminded me of recently. In the course of these conversations, I have to say I've begun to change my mind. A friend described to me recently how his mother is a master of small talk. He said she'll chat away to you for half an hour and by the end of it she knows everything about you and you didn't realise that you'd never actually told her anything specifically. I've thought a lot about this and it's taught me the value of small talk. By engaging in casual conversation, we demonstrate so much about ourselves. We demonstrate our values, our motivations, the things that are important to us, what we're interested in, and whether we're interested in what anyone else has to say. Since beginning to think about small talk in this way, I've started to observe how people engage in conversation. What is the relationship between what they are saying and what they are actually communicating? I mentioned earlier the three things we demonstrate when we engage in conversation, according to Jean-Louis de Sales. They were how well we can handle novelty, whether we are a threat, and whether we are someone people want to have around. Small talk, more than any other form of conversation, demonstrates all of these things. As Dorse said it, it pays to talk, as by doing so we build relationships, and through relationships we provide for our needs, both psychological and those That we need in the world and through conversation we can also help to fulfill the needs of others we don't all have the gift of the gab but by keeping our talk small we show others who we really are and they'll like us more than anything we think we have to prove or discuss that seems more important so i'm taking that as a challenge to talk smaller sort of as ubiquitous as languages we have seen that all languages appear not to have been created equally from a social perspective. When considering how we use language, therefore, it is important to also consider the social forces that emerge in conversation. An important one is turn-taking. When we engage in conversation, we naturally fall into a rhythm. You speak, I speak, you speak, and so on. It has been found that conversations overlap by as little as 5%. There may be a biological clock mechanism at play, which synchronizes neurons during conversation. However, more observable characteristics of turn-taking can also be noted. These were described in a 1974 paper by sociologists Howard Sachs, Emanuel Schleckhoff, and Gail Jefferson, who pioneered work on conversation analysis. They include both visual and non-visual cues, such as changing intonation, holding gaze, and gesturing when we are drawing to the end of our turn. However, the social predicates of culture also influence how conversations and turn-taking occur. Back-channel is a form of social signalling where the listener demonstrates to the speaker that they are paying attention and that the speaker can continue to hold the floor. We say things like, "Uh uh-huh, mm, and yes, or we're not in agreement. These are all common examples of back-channel. The social aspects of turn-taking have also been shown in studies of the number of interruptions, length of turns, and the way in which turns are taken. For instance, in some contexts, men speak for longer than women and interrupt women more frequently. As such, discourse analysis has become an important focus for gender studies and other issues of social justice. Discourse analysis is an interesting field of social psychology, which I'm going to take a closer look at in a future episode. This second part of our series on language broadly answers the question, how do we use language? In describing aspects of the linguistic fields of semantics and pragmatics, we've seen the way that language functions as a means of communication. We've seen how grammar, salience and context are crucial for understanding the meaning of the words that make up sentences and the sentences that make up phrases. We've also seen how social norms and behaviours are intrinsic to the dialects and speech communities that vary among communities of people. And we have also seen how social forces influence not only the words we say, but also how we even take our turn to speak. The sum of all of these moving parts is something that should be obvious. Language is powerful. Like anything powerful, when handled responsibly, it can result in many benefits. But if abused, language can literally reshape society in disturbing ways. Think of the term freedom of speech. Interpreted politically, this means the freedom to express one's thoughts and opinions. However, if considered literally, it describes the freedom to choose the very words we utter. Imagine if there were constraints on the language that we can use. What would that world look like? Perhaps it would not be that bad. We have many language taboos after all. Swear words, racial slurs, derogatory or misogynistic terms which social norms keep us from saying outside of select circles if at all. So the idea of constrained language is not inherently outlandish. But what if our choice of words was limited politically? To utter an outlawed word would be a crime. What would be the outcome of such policy? Such a world is not as hard to imagine as you might think. Consider, for instance, colours. The human eye can distinguish millions of colours, but do we have names for all of them? No, of course not. Most languages categorise 11 colours, black, white, red, blue, green, yellow, and so on. But how do we describe all of the rest? Our eyes can still see the colour, but if we don't have a term for light blue or dark blue or taupe or mauve or teal, then are those colours just blue, brown, purple, and green? Without the words to describe them, those colours may as well not exist. And apply this to any word, and its meaning also vanishes from our conceptual world. Imagine if you could never refer to the dead. Loved ones or people who have passed on, whether through accident intention or natural causes. If the boundary between the living and the dead was not only biological, but psychological. When a person ceased to exist in this reality, they'd vanish from our lexicon. We could never speak of them or speak of death. You're here one minute, gone the next. How would such a policy shape society? There'd be no funerals, no reflection upon the life of those past. How would crimes involving death be managed, or illnesses, If we cannot speak of death, then how could we consider anything about it in the living present? This somewhat macabre example may seem far-fetched, but it demonstrates that control of language fundamentally alters how we think. George Orwell famously extrapolated such a scenario in his ominous book, 1984. In it, the English Socialist Party, or Ingsoc, rules the superstate of Oceania. Ingsoc tightly controls language, forbidding any terms which describe personal identity, freedom and self-expression. A new vernacular named newspeak is introduced which removes any words which may be used to describe dissent against Oceania's ruling policies. Newspeak is a simplified grammar in which all secondary, connotative meanings are removed, thus removing ambiguous meaning from language. Orwell describes newspeak as follows, quote, The purpose of newspeak was not only to provide a medium of expression for the worldview and mental habits proper to the devotees of Ingsoc, but to make all other modes of thought impossible. It was intended that when new speak had been adopted once and for all and old speak forgotten, a heretical thought, that is, a thought diverging from the principles of Insoc should be literally unthinkable, at least so far as thought is dependent on words. Its vocabulary was so constructed as to give exact and often very subtle expression to every meaning that a party member could properly wish to express, while excluding all other meanings and also the possibility of arriving at them by indirect methods. This was done partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly by eliminating undesirable words and by stripping such words as remained of unorthodox meanings, and so far as possible of all secondary meanings whatever. End quote. Jocko Willink recently covered Newspeak and its implications for society extensively in episode 263 of his Jocko podcast, which I'll link to in the show notes. It's an excellent episode which articulates the consequences of those in power when they use that power to wield it to influence language. We begin to see from these examples that language and thought are closely related, just as seen in colour naming studies. If we cannot name a concept, then we cannot easily think it. But as frightening as these examples are, are we really so removed from this reality in the present day? Can we also conceive of a situation in which removing certain words from our lexicon would be a bad thing? What if we removed words of hate and stigma that reflect our homophobic, xenophobic or socially misguided ways? Many would argue that we've gone too far with political correctness, but when we consider the power of language, we would do well to consider a society in which we all feel comfortable, and how language can serve to erect barriers of difference between us, or raise them to the ground. But to end on a more whimsical note, let's talk about swearing. Language is central to our humanity. It enables communication between us, and has the power to change society. But it is more useful than just that. When wielded in just the right way, it gives us superpowers. And one of those ways is swearing. No, seriously. For a long time, It was thought that swearing was a sign of low intellect, lazy speech and a poor upbringing. But it turns out this is not the case. Like many prudish, outdated social norms, we've had it all wrong. Swearing is found throughout the 7,000 or so human languages as it serves as a versatile grammatical vehicle for interjecting humour, emphasising key points and conveying emotion, each of which increases social bonding. Swearing literally helps us get through life. And despite what we might assume, studies have found that women swear as much as men, and one of those is scientist Emma Byrne. Emma Byrne covered the topic extensively in her 2009 book, Swearing is Good for You. Here are a few bullet points from her book, which will help us round out part two of this series. Firstly, it should come as no surprise that people of all nationalities swear, but how we swear varies between cultures. Swearing is a social taboo, but the taboo of one country is not the same as another. The Japanese, for instance, don't have the same social taboo surrounding poo as found in many Western cultures, so the word shit is not found in their swearing lexicon. There's also considerable variation even among countries which share the same language. In the English-speaking world, a Kiwi like me might say he's buggered when referring to someone who is tired, but it would be taken quite a different way by an English person, so to speak. I have to read this example of the cultural differences in language from Emma Byrne's book. Quote, A Victorian-style sensibility still held sway throughout the English-speaking world well into the 20th century. Winston Churchill claimed that he was rebuked by one American society hostess for asking for breast meat when offered chicken. According to Sir Winston, she replied, In this country, we ask for white meat or dark meat. To make amends, he sent the offended lady an orchid, Being Winston Churchill, he attached a note that read, I would be obliged if you would pin this to your white meat. End quote. Not only are all swear words not equal, the way our brain uses them varies as well. There are two distinct types of swearing. The first is called propositional swearing. This is the deliberate form chosen for effect, like when I observe something broken and say, it's buggered. In simple terms, this type of swearing is produced in the left brain, which is dominant for language. Now, you may remember I spoke earlier about the highly networked nature of the brain, so this description is not entirely accurate, but it serves to make the point. The second type of swearing is known as non-propositional swearing. This type of swearing is involuntary and unplanned. It occurs in an outburst, often in response to pain or shock. Bugger! Non-propositional swearing is emotionally driven and draws more heavily on the right side of the brain. However, this is only the end of the line for our startled curses. Specifically, they seem to arise from the emotional centre of the brain, the limbic system, including the amygdala, which is responsible for our fight-or-flight response. Evidence for this phenomenon is found in patients suffering aphasia following stroke or other neurological conditions where the left hemisphere, where Broca's area resides, is damaged. Remarkably, while people with aphasia cannot speak, they can still utter swear words. The right hemisphere of the brain deals in chunks of meaning, so people with aphasia can typically recite days of the week in numbers and other similar patterns, and they can swear involuntarily. The subcortical structure where the amygdala resides is the oldest part of our brain in evolutionary terms, and suggests that emotionally driven, non-propositional swearing is a product of the primitive instinct to express emotion. If you remember back to the second episode of this series, I mentioned the poo-poo theory, which theorised that the first forms of language were exclamations in response to pain. With what we have learned about the lateralization of the brain and its different functional regions, it effectively rejects that theory, as the language we use to communicate is produced in quite a different way to the language we use in non-propositional swearing. So at least we finally found one answer in this series. Returning to propositional swearing, it turns out that having a potty mouth may not be a sign of a poor upbringing, questionable moral values, or a poor vocabulary after all. In verbal fluency tests, the ability of people to generate large lists of words, beginning with a specific letter, is correlated with general language fluency and intelligence. When these people are asked to list as many swear words as possible, not surprisingly, they do very well. A rich swearing repertoire indicates not only good command of the language, but that the swearer has the cognitive ability to use it effectively. But that's not all. When people use swear words in conversation, they need to judge the sensitivities of the other person. Choosing an appropriately inappropriate word is not easy, but when done well, it demonstrates a good understanding of theory of mind, that the swearer can develop a shared mental model with their interlocutor. This can elicit humour, reduce emotional tension, and demonstrate trust, but use with caution. There are also other strategies for achieving these things. But perhaps the most important swearing superpower is its ability to increase our tolerance for pain. For a long time, it was thought that swearing had the opposite effect by causing us to catastrophize pain, effectively making it worse than it is. But it turns out that idea was bullshit. UK scientist Dr Richard Stevens has published several papers which demonstrate this. The first experiment goes something like this. Volunteers are asked to list several neutral words and several swear words, one of which is chosen from each list by the experimenter. The volunteers must then place one hand in a small bath of ice water, it's about three degrees above zero, while repeating either the neutral word or the swear word. The time is taken until the volunteer can no longer tolerate the pain and withdraws their hand. This study found that volunteers could withstand the pain for 50% longer them when saying the neutral word. Their heart rates also increased, and their self-reported subjective impression of pain decreased. In a recent version of the study, Dr. Stevens wanted to understand whether swearing simply distracts us from the pain, or if there is something about saying swear words themselves that gives us this superpower. So to test this, he ran the same experiment, but this time volunteers were asked to say uh, two made-up swear words. These were twizpipe and fouch, as well as a common one. fuck. He found the same thing as in the neutral word study. Despite the volunteers finding the made-up words humorous, they were not as effective at increasing pain tolerance or pain onset time. So next time you stub your toe, bump your head, or stand on a piece of Lego, distract the kids, then have a good swear, and you'll be right as rain in no time. So that brings us to the end of part two of our series on language. We've only taken a brief tour of semantics and pragmatics, and we've looked at how we use language to construct our social worlds, and how this in turn serves to define our lived experience. There is so much more I could have covered here, but not being an expert in this and also in the interest of time, then I've kept this fairly uh, fairly limited exploration, but we'll probably revisit these types of concepts in later episodes as uh, we come back to them with different elements of social psychology, like the uh, discourse analysis I mentioned earlier. Now, in the next episodes, in the final part of this series, we're going to attempt to answer the final question, which we've been hinting at throughout this episode. Do we need language to think? So in the third part of this series, we will consider the philosophy of language as we draw our exploration of the topic to a close. Thanks for coming along on the journey so far. I hope you've been finding some value in it and will join me for the final episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The and Now Podcast or Twitter at Here Now Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theheronnow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.